Thank you so much, choir and praise band, and uh, my heart's been filled today. You know what? If you've got some chains, I know a chain breaker, amen? And that's Jesus Christ, my Savior and King. And today, I hope, I hope with all of my heart that you will focus your heart and mind on Jesus Christ today. He is our hope, and He is our life, and He is our Savior, and He is our great and good God, and He is with us, and He never leaves us, nor forsakes us, and He meets us in the most difficult trials of our life, and He gives you a hope that's beyond this world. And folks, I don't know what you got your focus on, but fix your eyes on Jesus. He'll never let you down. And he's the author and perfecter of our faith. We've come to worship him today and give him honor and glory. If you have your Bible, open with me, please, to I love the Word of God. It's so rich. It's so powerful. It's so true. It's so life-changing. And uh, as we hear it and we're encouraged in it and we obey it, this series of messages has been about the ministry of the resurrected Jesus. And today, I, uh, uh, we want to focus on how, with the Lord's power and His Holy Spirit, the church became unstoppable. That nothing could squelch or nothing could set aside or nothing could impede what Christ was going to do through his church. Do you find Acts chapter 12, beginning with verse number 1? Acts 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. It was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer him was made to God by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side, woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself. Put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did know, not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. But when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It was opened for them of its own accord. 
And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people, and all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He said to them, these things, tell these things to James and the brothers. He departed and he went to another place. Father, may you bless the reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this text today, I want us to look at some of the different characters and, and what happens in, the, in this story. And it's put into God's word for our instruction and for our encouragement. Anybody ever gone through some struggles in your life? Well, <clears throat> I suspect it's most of us. And I want you to know that as this text, we read it, it ought to give you encouragement, no matter what the struggle that you have in your life. Now, the first thing that we want to look at are the persecutors. Who are the ones doing the persecuting? And verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, at this time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. Now, who is this? This is Herod. He is called a king. He's Herod Agrippa I, called King Herod. He was the grandson of Herod the Great, the great builder and architect. Herod the Great, the one that was so insecure that when Jesus was born, he wanted the babies to be slaughtered near Bethlehem. He was so insecure that he had some of his own family members killed, thinking that they might be a threat to his rule and his reign. But there was a lot of, he was a great leader in many regards, but that was Herod the Great, followed by Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas was an uncle of Herod Agrippa I. He's the one who had John the Baptist killed, and he's the one who partnered with Pilate in sentencing our Savior to death. That's Herod Antipas. This is Herod, King Agrippa I. He was reared in Rome, and as a boyhood boy, he grew up with some of those, some young men like Caligula and others who would become Roman emperors. He was a very much a political leader, and he was given an assignment as a king, a ruler, under Rome's authority, and he's placed in Palestine. The extent of his kingdom under Roman rule 
was as just in every way as extensive as King, uh, as the great King Herod the Great. Also, he's not only the only persecutor. This guy is a political animal. He loves to promote himself politically, and he begins to bring persecution against the church for political reasons. Secondly, those that also were involved in this persecution are the populace, are the people. It's the, the Jewish leaders. They hated the Nazarenes, and they wanted to, see, to eradicate them or displace them, and they did not want them to be in Judea. And so this, this outbreak of persecution, they were in full agreement with. But behind the, hand, behind the scenes, I think it's important for us as a church to understand when persecution breaks out, it's usually the hand of Satan that's behind it all. He's trying to, to destroy. He's a thief and a murderer, accuser of the brethren. He wants to divide and to threaten. That's the way he operates, and that's the persecutors. Secondly, notice the persecuted, those that were being persecuted. Notice in chapter 12, verse 1, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. He laid his hands on them. That means he was causing them to suffer. He was making their life difficult. Not only did he do that, verse number two, and there's just a short word about this. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now, who is this? James is one of the sons of Zebedee, fishing partners with Simon and Andrew, worked with their father Zebedee, earlier followers of Jesus from the region of Capernaum. And so they had been walking with Jesus. As a matter of fact, they were part of the inner circle. When you have the 12, then you also have the three that accompanies Jesus so closely, Peter, James, and what? John. And so these three. And James and John were called the sons of thunder. That they, they were, they were uh, go-getters, and they were fighters, and, and uh, they uh, were strong men's men. Their mother was also a follower of Jesus, and she's one of the many women that followed along and helped support the ministry of Jesus out of their own means. And one day in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, we have the story that James and John, along with their mama, comes to Jesus and she says, Lord, I want to ask you to do a favor for me. And he said, well, what is that? He said, would you have my two boys here, James and John, sit on your right and on your left whenever you enter into your kingdom? He said, you don't know what you're asking. He said, are you able to drink the cup I'm drinking? And he looks at the two boys. And James and John said, yes, we are able. He said, you will drink the cup. Meaning you will know suffering. And indeed they do. He said, but the sin on my right or left, that's not mine to give. That's for my father. And he has prepared those who will do that. But as for the son of man, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He says, you will drink that cup. What cup? That cup of suffering in your life. 
This is the third outbreak of persecution. The first we find by the Sadducees and the high priest against Peter and John early in Acts. Then years later, we see the outbreak in conjunction with Stephen brought by the Pharisees and Saul. Now we see the third wave, and that's by the political forces. And this is Herod and the political class. They realized that they would get some political mileage by killing one of the inner circle of the apostles, and that's James. Maybe you ask the question today, why suffering? If we're following God, when to obey God, we're witnessing, telling others about Christ, why would I experience suffering in my life? Why am I being persecuted? Well, let me say this. You've got an enemy. Did you know that? When you stand for Jesus, you've got an enemy. Jesus said, if they so persecuted the prophets and they persecute me, don't be surprised that they persecute you. So persecution comes with following Jesus. What is their intention, these persecutors? Number one, let me tell you what the persecutor wants to do. He wants to shut your mouth that you don't talk about Jesus. He wants to silence you. He wants to intimidate you. That's what they do. He wants to threaten you and make you to be filled with fear. And he wants you to stop worshiping Jesus and stop sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do they persecute? They persecute because they hate him. They persecute. They hate God. They hate Christ. They hate his church. And they're being used by the enemy. Sometimes they don't even know what they're doing. The Lord stops Saul in his track. He says, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. He didn't even know. He thought he was doing right, but he was doing wrong. That's the blindness of these persecutors. So how do I respond in the midst of persecution? Well, indeed, we will weep when we experience it. But we will pray. And we will trust Almighty God. Don't be surprised when persecution comes. The Bible says that all who desire to, to live a godly life will suffer persecution. Peter said we've been called to this. And suffering for righteousness brings maturity in your life. Let me tell you what suffering for righteousness does. When you trust in God, it teaches you to Trust in God. It teaches, it, it refines your faith. What is really valuable in your life begins to become more evident. And it makes you more closely identified with Jesus. We share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Peter's in jail. He's in jail. And so the persecution is not only killing of James, but this next level is he has Peter arrested and put in prison. Now, the time of the year is near Passover. It's in the, during the days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And remember how Passover kicks off the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so it's right during this season, this holy week, that he has Peter put in prison. And his intention is to have him brought out and have him to be killed. And he's going to wait till after Passover 
to do it. Number three, notice the prison of chains. And notice how he is in, he's put into chains. When they seized him, verse number four, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after Passover to bring him out before the people. But Peter was kept in prison. Peter was sleeping, verse number six, between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. Looks like Peter's pretty secure in prison, right? There are four squads of four soldiers, 16 soldiers given to watching and keeping him secure. Two soldiers on each arm of Simon Peter. And there's a chain, chained to Peter and chained to a soldier. And on this arm, a chain, a chain to Peter and a chain to the soldier. And outside the doors, there's a, two guards that are keeping watch over the doors. And they are secure in prison. And yet they're watching over it to make sure he does not escape in any way. He's holding them till after Passover. And it seems like a hopeless situation with no escape. But how is Peter responding in the midst of it? It says in verse number six, he was sleeping. Isn't that unbelievable? He knows that he's in chains. He knows that he's in prison. He knows that he's going to bring him out. And he knows that he's going to probably die like James did. And they took that sword and lopped off the head of James. And the church saw it and knew about it. And Peter knew that probably certain death was his. But there was a peace in his heart that allowed him to sleep in the midst of a prison because God held his life. Paul and Silas, in the midst of their chains, they sang praises to God, and they preached the gospel, and God set them free in Acts chapter 16. But here, Peter is resting and sleeping. I think both men, that's what they did. They preached to everybody. They told them about Christ. They praised God, and they rested that God held their lives. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. How can they kill you? Amen. So, the song, a gospel song, I Bless Your Name by Selah, that says, Some midnight hour, if you should find, you're in a prison of your own mind. Reach out and praise and defy those chains, and they'll fall off in Jesus' name. He, he meets us in that place. Next, notice the prayers of the church. What was the church doing? In verse number five, it says they were kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. That word fervently means earnest prayer. Literally, it means stretched out in prayer. The American version translates it unceasing in prayer. It's a similar word that's used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, earnestly praying before God. The church of Jesus Christ was in prayer. The question I want to ask you is how do we respond in the midst of difficulty or trial, persecution? How do I respond when the enemy threatens me? Can I tell you something about prayer? Prayer touches the throne of God. When we pray, we're in connection with the one who has all authority. 
And we turn our hearts to pray. Wringing your hands and worrying, that won't change. But turning to God with all of your heart. Prayer brings focus upon the Almighty God who is in charge of every situation of life. Prayer instills faith in us and peace that surpasses all understanding. And we pray because prayer is the humble, faithful response to mighty God who holds us in our difficulty. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and in due time, he will lift you up. That truth is demonstrated right here. Amen. Amen. I want Bethel to be a praying church. I want our church to be a church of prayer. It might be known not as the slickest church, not the biggest church, but a church of prayer. That we're praying for one another. That we pray for missionaries. That we pray for our pastors and leaders. That we pray for our neighbors and co-workers. That we pray for a persecuted church. That we pray for a lost community. Amen? Amen. Number five, notice the Passover rescue. This is a great, notice in verse number seven of chapter 12. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and light shone in the cell. Do you think that might wake somebody up? And he struck Peter's side to wake him up. Peter is so asleep, he has to nudge him to wake him up. And he nudges him, his side. He said, get up, Peter. Quickly, come on, get up. Get dressed, Peter. And the chains fell off. Can you imagine? Now, here's Peter. And all of a sudden, chain falls off his arm. And he's not attached to the soldiers. The soldiers are still asleep, I suppose. And Peter's He's an angel of the Lord. He said, hey, dude, get up. And Peter's like, am I dreaming? Get up quickly. Come on. Put on your clothes. Put on your sandals. Come on. Let's go. And so he's leading him out, and he leads him past the, uh, the guards. Peter still thinks, maybe I'm seeing a vision. And he comes past the first guard. He comes past the second guard. And then there's this big iron gate. And uh, it leads into the city, and it's locked and closed. But when they approach the iron gate, it opens. And Peter and the angel of the Lord walk through. This text is rich in irony. This text is rich with what it's teaching. What is the date that this is happening? Passover. What happened on Passover? The Jews were in slavery, captivity. What happened at Passover? The Jews had prayed with weeping to Almighty God. What happens at Passover? God raises up Moses and Aaron. What happens at Passover? The angel of the Lord passes over, bringing death 
to all the firstborn, but life to those who are under the blood. What happens at Passover? They have their sandals on so they quickly, quickly can escape. What happens to Passover? They come to the Red Sea, and it seems like a, a force that they can't open, but God opens it, and they walk through, and they become a nation of God. Passover. It's a Passover that our Savior died. And his rich blood was poured out for our sins. And he died the death that we deserve. And he rose again victoriously that we might be saved of all of our sins, set free from what held our hearts captive and made us a new people. So in a very similar way, the iron gate flies open. And Peter and the angel walk through they go down another street or so, and the angel of the Lord leads him. Peter comes to himself, and he makes his way. He makes his way, and as soon as he leaves, he says, I know for sure the Lord has rescued me from the hand of Herod. That's Exodus language. And so it's Easter night, so to speak, and the church of Jesus Christ is locked behind locked doors and locked gates and they're praying earnestly for Peter, and they're turning their hearts to God, and they're trusting in him and asking God to, to rescue, and all of a sudden, there is a knock at the gate. That brings us to the next section, the report that Peter makes to them. And so he's knocking at the gate at Mary's home. This is John Mark's family. Mary is John Mark's mother. It may be, some scholars believe, the house where the upper room, where the last Lord's Supper was first uh, celebrated on the night of our Lord's death. And he comes to Mary's house where he knew the church would be gathered, and he knocks on the door, and a, a young girl, Rhoda, a slave girl, runs, and she hears the gate and someone knocking at the gate. And she comes, and, and it's Peter, and he, he tells her, hey, it's me, I'm let me, and she forgets to open the door and let him in. And she runs back in. She goes, Peter is at the gate. And they said, you're crazy, girl. She said, no, he's at the gate. And they said, no, it's his ghost or his angel. No, it's him. And they finally, she persuades them. They go to the gate, and there's Peter, and they let him in. And Peter comes into the courtyard where they're all gathered at the church. And he says with his hands kind of quietly, he tells them how God had rescued him from prison and how that the Lord is with us and how not to be intimidated in fear. And he just begins to encourage their hearts and says, I'm leaving, but I want to give you a report to give. This is what you want you to do. I want you to go to James, the Lord's half-brother, and I want you to go to the brothers. This must mostly women here. Tell the brothers what had happened to me. And so they, he leaves. They saw him. They were filled with amazement. He told them of his rescue, and they were all encouraged. What is the message that they're to declare? Do not fear. Don't fear a minute because God has us in control, in his hand. Number two, God is sovereignly in charge of everything. He's in charge of your life. He's in charge of your destiny. Can you tell your neighbor God's in charge of all of our lives? Tell him, God's in charge. He's in charge of all of our lives. God is with us. Did you know the Lord never has abandoned you? 
The Lord says, I will, the scripture says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's never a time that we're abandoned by Jesus Christ, even when we're persecuted. Even James, when they brought him before heartless Herod and they had his head lopped off with the sword, even in that moment, Jesus was right there with him. And they stoned Stephen to death. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, willing to receive him. When folks are persecuted, Jesus is there with us. Not only is he with us, he's mighty to save. And he is greater than our enemies. Wow. Isn't that good news? If you have your Bible, the book of Romans, doesn't it just fit here? In the eighth chapter, listen to how Paul frames it. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will we not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's the one that condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who's raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution? No. Or famine? No. Or nakedness? No. Or peril? No. Or sword? No. For as it's written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So when you go through these, keep praying. Keep praising. Keep singing. Keep witnessing. Keep believing in God and trust Him. And don't be fearful. Don't live intimidated. He has you in His hands. He has you in His mighty hands. When we get ready to take this Lord's Supper right now, we think about the report of Peter and the church. And this is the report. Number one, God liberates his people. Amen? God leads his people. God's with his people. God holds his people. God is with us, and God is for us. When we take this Lord's Supper, we remember Jesus died for you. Jesus shed his blood for you. Jesus rescued you. Jesus liberated you. And Jesus' life dwells in you. This is the greatest news in all the world.
We're going to take our Lord's Supper together today. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, then today reach out, call on his name, and he will save you. He'll change your life. Today, if you are a follower of him, as you take this bread, remember Jesus died for you. Jesus laid down his life for you. He suffered for you. He shed his blood for you. And when we take this supper, we remember together that we are one. We are the body of Christ. We are his church. We're not divided, we're one. And he leads us. Father, as we take this meal together, may we reflect and focus on Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Ushers will lead you. You come by, pick up the elements. You'll come back to your seat, and then I'll lead us in taking the Lord's Supper together.